You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hello, and welcome to the Guidepost, everyone. I am here with Willie. He Good morning, to Tony. Go away. Uh, Willie and I have had a tough morning fighting back and forth and sending mean YouTube videos to each other. And we're hoping our guest can pull us out of our morass. But in the meantime, uh, if anybody agrees that Tony throws tantrums just like Veruca Salt and Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, please let me know because I'd like a little more ammo in that argument. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll see if the listeners email us in uh their comments and uh if you feel like willie is a gap model mannequin uh and so picky that he could drive a anyone freaking nuts and make you want to drop drop off a cliff then you can send that to our emails as well but we have uh we have our buddy lucas bissett here today and lucas is the new executive director of afta how exciting Round of applause. Congratulations, Lucas. Man, I I, I thought we'd have to, uh, like, get that audio recorded clap, but that was real. I want everyone to know that was a real clap produced by Willie, who apparently does have hands, even though he is a gap model. Um, (laughs) Because most of those mannequins don't have uh, don't have arms. So, you know what else they don't have, right, Lucas? Let's not let's not find out. Right. Hold on a sec. Hold on a sec. Uh, I didn't sign up for this. Uh, so Lucas just, um, just got the job as the new executive director of AFTA. And for our listeners, AFTA is the American Fly Fishing Trade Association. Um, you know, they, they have their awesome trade show every year, uh, that we do our best to attend. And one of the coolest things about AFTA is they are not afraid to stand up for the resource. And I got to believe that was part of their hiring decision with Lucas, because Lucas is a veteran of standing up for the resource. He does so many things. Um, I mean, uh, Lucas, one of my favorite stories about you, and I think one of the most compelling things about you when I first met you, was your Black Mangrove restoration. And, um, and, you know, this is one of those things I keep telling people, they're like, we can't do anything. We don't want to get involved. We don't know what to do. Basically, Lucas is pulling a skiff in a marsh in Louisiana and sees little black mangrove pod and sees all the, all the islands eroding. So what'd you do about that, Lucas? What'd you do? What'd you start and where have you gone? Because this is the kind of guy that Lucas is. Yeah, so uh, from that day of pulling on the skiff, looking at the uh, the native stands of black mangroves in Louisiana, and watching it erode at a, an alarming rate, I think we're at uh, football field every hundred minutes now in the state of land loss, uh, which is a just a an atrocious number that you know I would love to slow down. Uh, do you do you think that's because LSU cheats at football, or do you think that's just a <laughs> 
I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. We're things, SEC enemies, me and Lucas. Please, Lucas, continue. No, no, those things are mutually exclusive. I'm pretty sure. Okay, okay, okay. I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> no, no, I'm pretty sure. Um, no, and so as as someone who had some coastal restoration experience, having worked at LSU for seven years um, after college, I I immediately saw an opportunity to try and bolster some of those native stands of black mangroves. And so my original plan was just to go out and do it myself, sort of Johnny Appleseed style. Um, in Louisiana, we have a funny thing where land is owned and water is owned by private entities. Um, and so I needed to get permission in order to get on some of these land masses in order to do these plantings. And in, in inquiring about those areas, I actually recruited uh, the local parish, we call them parishes, you call them counties, uh, government, and they wanted to be a part of this endeavor. And so uh, they were then recruited along with LSU's Ag Center, um, which is their sort of agricultural branch of the college. And then from there, it just sort of blossomed into Orvis got involved, AFTA got involved before I was a board member. Um, and then we also got Louisiana Sea Grant involved. And so from there, it blossomed into an amazing uh, project that's now four years in the making. Uh, we planted over 5,000 black mangroves. We've included over 20 kids from the local high school who have grown those mangroves in their black or in their uh, greenhouses and then have gone out and planted those. And this year, I'm excited to announce that we've included a guide uh, platform to expand the project. And now we're calling it REELS, R-E-E-L-S. Um, which is a cool acronym that I just can't remember right off the top of my head, but it's basically recreational involvement, um, adding a component of professionals who are in the area who may want to be further educated about land loss in, in Louisiana. As and, for folks, and for folks who don't know you, Lucas, it's mentioning, you know, you're a guide down there, right? Down in Louisiana. Yeah. That's kind of yeah. how you first came across, you know, what you were seeing with the mangroves and how you got involved. Actually, yes. Willie, he was the Orvis endorsed guide of the year for the world a couple of years for the ago. world for the world that yeah. is for the entire universe right and um and i and i i i'm teasing him but that's that's no small that's no small accomplishment like you got to no, be this, getting some stuff done to, to yeah get this that is award. a th this is a thanos level uh award i mean we're talking we're talking all do you get do you get the the thanos yeah no all arm five, thing power of destruction crystals. the power yeah, crystals no, the whole, too. yeah or whatever they're called yeah those things um can I no, can I please use that at the at at the trade show in October? <laughs> so like, can I just just give me ten minutes with it, dude? That's all I need. I may only let you use certain crystals. I don't know. I'm a little nervous about what you might do. <laughs> um, okay, okay. I want the red one. <laughs> the red one. All right. <laughs> so. Um, so yeah, I don't remember where I was. We're talking, you were talking about kind of guides getting involved Willie, and all the yeah, restoration. Yeah, yeah. yeah so sorry, excited. I interrupted. I do that. No, no, no. You, no, you were, uh, you were actually helping me explain my own story, which is nice. I mean, that's that's always good whenever you help me remember what I did. Um, no, I definitely need that kind of help. Uh, so yeah, so we, uh, I was a guide in Louisiana for ten years prior to um, this new job, which I've now scaled way back in order to concentrate solely on the trade association and our industry. Um, and so having that experience in the system and knowing that there's definitely a need for more awareness about what's going on in Louisiana and knowing that these guides are taking people from all over the country and the world, I thought it was a good opportunity to educate them in 
in a way that would allow them to get that message out so that people could become more aware of what's going on in Louisiana. Um, that's a first step, you know, and Tony sort of mentioned at the beginning of this about what people could do and people feeling overwhelmed by a project or by climate change or other things. The reality is, is that if you look close enough in your own home waters, there's always an opportunity to get involved in some capacity, either through an existing program like the one I created or even just going out. And, and what I try to do is something as simple as picking up plastic on my way home every day on a trip or eliminating plastic water bottles as part of your regimen if you're a guide. You know, those are things that are relatively easy to do. You end up actually saving money on the water bottle thing over time. And you, uh, you're doing something good for the environment because you're not creating more plastic in the ocean that's already inundated with plastic, as we know. So, yeah, the, the, the point of that is that it's, it's really easy to get involved in a lot of these things. And um, we should all, as stewards of our environment, definitely be looking for opportunities to get involved in that capacity. And, and Lucas, just to put, a, put an exclamation point on it, the black mangrove is, the, is one of the mangroves that's native to your home state. And it, it does an excellent job at holding land together and right. buffering against storms <laughs> and a million other things. Sequestering carbon, right? Among other yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. Actually, actually, that's one of the things that, and when I first got involved in the program, I didn't even think about carbon sequestration. But yeah, you're right, Willie. It's actually not only great at holding together land better than the, the native smooth cord grass that's also there, but it is at the same time just a major carbon sink for um, for all the you know things that we're putting out there in the atmosphere. The the double-edged sword about Louisiana is that it's one of the bigger carbon sinks in the country. But as we lose that land, that carbon gets re-emitted back into the atmosphere. And so not only are you losing the sequestration capability, but you're also putting back carbon that had been sequestered in the past. So it makes states like Louisiana and Florida and other places where we're seeing these major land loss events or changes in the environment that much more detrimental to what we're trying to do for the future. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a hell of a story. And I think a, also a great segue to your work at AFTA, right? Because obviously climate is a big part of what you're focusing on there. And I'm wondering, you know, we're here today to talk about the Madison Stevens act. We uh, had this, this big reauthorization bill introduced earlier this week, and we'll, we'll get to that in a bit, but before we do that, it'd be great to just step back and talk about AFTA, talk about your guys's mission and some of your main priorities and fisheries, obviously, you know, AFTA is a friend of ASGA's. Our two groups have a lot in common. And, uh, you know, we're proud to partner on a bunch of different issues. But curious to hear a bit more kind of about where you guys are focusing right now. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, AFTA is definitely um, has been involved heavily in the past in, in sort of marine issues. Uh, we understand the importance of being involved in those fights from a business standpoint. Um, our mission is to uh, guide the sustainable growth of the fly fishing industry and sustainable being the important word. You know, when you're looking at opportunities to get involved as a, as a trade organization, you know, we have to walk a fine line sometimes of understanding what is business and what is conservation. I think that we try to blur that line at times because we understand that both of those components are obviously affecting someone's business. If you don't have a fishery or a resource, it doesn't matter how good your business is doing, it's going to end up suffering. And we understand the importance of having abundant fisheries in order to make sure that we have an ample opportunity as fly fishermen using a primitive weapon to get out there and have those, you know, have those great stellar days that we're all looking for. Um, the good thing about fly fishing as, as a sport or an industry is that we have what I consider to be one of the strongest conservation ethos as a group that exists. And so we have the backing of our membership whenever we get involved in things like Magnuson 
or we get involved in things like climate change because everyone is out there on the front lines experiencing these issues and they know the importance of protecting the resource when looking at it from a business standpoint. Um, when I took over as the executive director, one of my biggest missions is, is really trying to make sure that we're communicating with our membership to understand how all of these things tie together. You know, we're really trying to make the, the trade argument fit really well with access issues, with conservation issues. Um, you know, when I look at something like the SOAR Act or the, you know, Recreation Not Red Tape Act, those are perfect examples for me as how when someone doesn't have the appropriate knowledge about permitting processes out west on BLM land, or they don't understand how to navigate through some of these landlocked areas, that that in turn can, you know, really kind of reduce their opportunity. And that in turn reduces their ability to make money. And so I'm really trying to connect conservation and trade in a way that hasn't been done in the past so that not only our membership understands where we're headed as an organization, but that politicians and other on the Hill can understand that when we're fighting for for these conservation measures, it's doing it from a business standpoint and not necessarily just from a, a society standpoint or a social aspect. Tony, what do you call Lucas? A silver tongued? What is it? What is your what is your pet name for him? Because I think that was a pretty good example of it right there. <laughs> well, I call Lucas a lot of things, man. So like, nah, he's just, you know what? Lucas has an innate ability. You know, you can't teach it. He has this incredible ability to connect with people and articulate his position. And he's a super likable guy. And, um, and, you know, he's just one of those people that I'm glad I'm, I'm glad I'm friends with him. And I, and I love being able to sit and, and watch his, watch his career and his influence blossom because he's the voice he's, you know, we desperately, we desperately need these voices in conservation. And, and, you know, Lucas, um, I bet you there's a lot of people that are listening to this that wish that their trade association that they think represents them um, would, would roll up their sleeves and, and do the good work that you have after doing, um, you know, hope, hope that creates a little bit of jealousy across the spectrum because, you know, in, in my mind, I know when we look at our membership and our guys, you know, we, Willie and, and, and me and, and other, other people on our team, you know, we, we look at it and we say, you know, what's the most important thing we can do today to make sure that we stabilize our industry and make sure that our guys can still be doing what they love three, five, seven years from now. Um, and, and I think you're doing the same thing at AFTA. You know, you have, because we're the Saltwater Guides Association and we're just on the East Coast right now, um, you know, you, you have everything from teeny, mountain streams at 14,000 feet to an exploding saltwater fly fishing segment, coast to coast, Alaska, you know, you, it, it's comprehensive. And, um, and, you know, I think, I think that across all those businesses, the one thing that they share, same with our guys is, is that the healthier the resource, the more, the more clients they're going to have and the more business they're going to generate. And I know you see that. I mean, we talk about it all the time. Um, so kudos to you. And I, and I think the future has never been brighter at AFTA. And, uh, and I, you know, I'll give them another clap 
for making <laughs> for making this hiring decision because it's just another really good person that we have a lot of respect for um, that's going to be fighting on the side of good with us. So it's just it's just exciting, and that, my friend, is a great segue to start talking about our next fight and the things that we agree on with Congressman Huffman and uh, Congressman Ed Case's reauthorization of Magnuson that dropped on Monday. And if correct, I'm glad I, I'm glad I didn't say I would put on uh, a little Bo Peep outfit, but I did say I would wear a Mets jersey if the thing actually dropped on Monday and God damn it, if it didn't drop on Monday, we've been waiting so long. So I'm waiting for Willie to send me a Mets Jersey over Amazon or something. I'm not a welcher on my bets. What's what's the awful. name of their mascot? The, the, the baseball head guy. Cause I kind of want to send you that whole suit instead, but that I, might be I, you know, you know, Willie, head. I don't, I don't even know. I just know they're, <laughs> they're like a sad little farm club for the Yankees. That's all much like the Orioles. That they deal with Orioles fans where I live. Oh, he's just called Mr. Met, so that was kind of anticlimactic. But I would still <laughs> appreciate that. That made a good photo op and probably a good post on the website. So I'll be looking into that. Um, speaking of speaking of people that we just kick the crap out of all the time, what's the weather like in Boston, Willie? Uh, it is it is beautiful. <laughs> you know what? It is a beautiful time to be alive here. Last I checked the standings. Uh, Yankees aren't doing so well. So it's all I'm gonna say. And I'm enjoying a beautiful early fall or early fall feeling day up here. And uh zero. All those buddy, all those so. rings, all those rings make it hard to turn the bat and to feel great. I mean, all I can really ask is what have you done for me lately? But you know, we can continue this conversation offline, my friend. Sure. So sure, to the sure. subject at hand, Lucas, the Madison Stevens Act, reauthorization bill. Tony mentioned it. There's a lot in here. Um, folks might have gotten might have seen some of our social media posts on it we have a blog on our website talking about the bill and kind of giving our initial thoughts but lucas i know you were involved in a lot of the efforts uh to get this bill introduced and kind of curious you know what are your thoughts what are you excited about in this in this reauthorization bill yeah i mean you know i i kind of got involved with tony back when this reauthorization was supposed to happen in 2016 uh, you know, it gets reauthorized every 10 years, as we know, and, and we're now five years past that that deadline, quote unquote. Um, so, yeah, excited to see something come out from Congressman Huffman in case uh, we worked very hard with their offices, um, not only through, you know, sort of interaction via email and other opportunities. But then I was also involved personally in a listening session that he held uh, in New Orleans uh, last year uh, or yeah, early last year, I believe. Um, 2020 is just gone. Like, I don't even know what, when that was anymore, <laughs> you know, at some point then before COVID, um, we have a new BC, uh, which is before COVID. So, um, yeah, no, we're excited at AFTA and I'm excited personally at seeing something like this come out. I think for me, just right off the bat, the idea that there were so many people involved in listening sessions and, and the opportunity that you saw many stakeholders being asked for their, input is uh, is extremely important in this. Uh, I think that uh, Huffman did a great job of being bipartisan in the way that he he created this reauthorization bill. I think that's something that was extremely important to me simply because that's the way it was done before. I think, you know, even though in 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 Bush's era when it was last reauthorized, you know, you had all opportunities for partisan uh, you know, sort of politics, it was nice to see that conservation won the day and and I'm excited to see that it seems that this bill is is marching to that same beat. 
Um, we're excited to see a lot of the things that we had in our Blue Ribbon Panel Report that we put out earlier this year um, represented in that, in that reauthorization. I like the fact that we're starting to address climate change. Um, that's extremely important in the way that we're looking at our opportunities moving forward, simply because right now a lot of fisheries management regimes just don't address those. Um, those issues. It's, it's new and there's a lot of things that are happening now and we're seeing it more than ever in the last couple months with red tides and migratory changes in fish. Um, we're seeing all sorts of different things that are happening, you know, from coast to coast, as, as Tony said. And so seeing those things becoming addressed and the idea of, of incorporating that management regime into what's there is, is extremely important. Um, I think the forage fish aspect of it, as it touched on, was extremely important as well. Again, looking at it as an ecosystem-based management plan versus looking at it species by species. I mean, in, in order to look at, in my opinion, the way that these fish are, are surviving or, or not is, is really to look at the habitat issues that they're, that they're experiencing as well as the predator-prey relationship that happens between them and the migratory species of bait that they're chasing around. So um, really excited to see those things incorporated. Um, you know, beyond that, it's just it's a matter of looking at the bill as a whole and saying, is this something that we can stand behind and feel good about as AFTA? And the answer is yes. I mean, I think, you know, there's a few components here and there that maybe we would have loved to tweak when it was redlined. But the reality is, is that overall, this is a really good bill. And I think it's something that um, it, Congressman Huffman and Kay should be proud of and that they put out in the time that uh, politics seems to be as divided as ever. It's nice not to have to fight against something. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, a, I mean, it's been a long time. Like, I mean, that's how we met, you, right, Tony? That's how we met three years ago. You said, yeah. Lucas, you know, um, they really went above and beyond. Uh, and, and they, you know, when somebody has something like a listening tour with panelists and they travel to different areas of the country, you know, I, I was in the listening tour in Baltimore. Like you said, you were in the one in New Orleans. And you look around the table, and it's not like we were all friends, right? There were a lot of differing opinions. A lot. Um, and and I think I think those efforts have to be applauded because it wasn't an echo chamber. There were a ton of different, there were a ton of different thoughts um, bouncing around, um, you know, and <laughs> so, some of the things, you know, it was a little uncomfortable being a panelist because you knew the person sitting right next to you vehemently disagreed with your position. And, you know, all I can say is thank God I was one of the last to go, uh, because I got to get all my digs in and they couldn't say anything in return, which was pretty awesome. Um, so thanks, thanks for, thanks for setting me up, uh, that way in in the panel out i learned my lesson i'm always going to sit on the far end of the table on those panels so i can i can take my shots and not have to hear anything in return yeah and the good thing about sitting at the end of the table is that you know you can you can get away quickly if you've talked too much trash you know so scurrying is an option <laughs> absolutely and i also you know we had talked about the inclusivity and this was certainly an you know an incredibly inclusive process with so many different voices in the room and in addition to the individual items that you brought up you mentioned climate for example i think another piece that we're really excited about is is the recreational data element and obviously that's been something that a lot of folks have been thinking about a lot of that conversation has been in the gulf but we're seeing certainly more and more 
uh, conversations happening in the Mid-Atlantic as well. And what are your thoughts on some of the recreational data provisions that, that, that are in the bill? Well, I mean, I actually have been part of a uh, MAFAC task force on electronic data reporting. And MAFAC's, MAFAC's um, and what, Marine Fisheries Advisory Committee, is that right? Yeah, Marine Advisory Fishery, no, Marine Fisheries Advisory Council. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, they, they work directly with NOAA and NIMFS. And so, um, you know, we were brought together as a, that ER d- uh, task force, electronic data reporting task force, in order to try and look at opportunities to, um, you know, maybe supplement some of the information that's coming in through MRIP and, um, and doing so, finding sort of new and innovative ways to, uh, to capture data around catch effort or discards, you know, other things that um, NOAA and, and MRIP may need as supplemental information coming from anglers, you know, to try to get some of that buy-in. So I think that, you know, Huffman addressing that in the in the bill and the reauthorization, I think is extremely important. I mean, I am not an MRIP cheerleader by any means, but I do think that we have to try and find ways statistically to make sure that we stay within the the realm of what's already there historically in order to make sure that we're not, you know, just scrapping the whole system and starting over, because that's just not viable when you talk about, you know, data collection and, and reporting. And, and you're right, the Gulf has definitely been the, uh, the poster child for this argument and, and things that came out in years past. But the reality is, is that all of these opportunities exist throughout the entire nation. And looking at these opportunities in a reauthorization bill is important. And doing it in a, and again, in a statistically sound way, is, is as important because we have to know where we came from in order to know where we're going when it comes to data collection. Um, you know, I think the other thing that I, and I, I think is important that I wish would have maybe been addressed a bit more in the, in the bill would have been understanding the universe of anglers that are out there too. You know, that's something that right now our fisheries managers are having to make too many assumptions when it comes to who's out there fishing. And if we could get an understanding of the universe, it would be a much easier way for them to uh, to take away some of those assumptions that they're making whenever they're looking at data by, collection. By the universe, Lucas, are you referring more to, you know, why people are going fishing, like what their motivations are kind of thing? Or are you talking more about demographics and, and that kind of a, that kind of thing? Yeah, right now, I mean, if you look at the Gulf specifically, since that's what's been talked about a lot, you know, we don't understand how many people are actually out there fishing. You know, and just understanding that number would give us a much better opportunity to uh, to put statistically sound data into the system that we're trying to get out information about fisheries management management. You know, right now, if you have to assume how many people are out there fishing, every other number that you're working off of is an assumption. Whereas if we could get an actual tally of how many people are out there on a boat fishing, we could then make those uh, extrapolations out to the catch effort in a way that becomes actually meaningful. You know, those assumptions are what creates uncertainty when you're looking at fisheries managers and the way that they're putting together annual catch limits and other components that are in the Magnuson-Stevens Act. And so if you have that overall universe of anglers, it takes away one uncertainty when you're looking at the, you know, the way that we manage. Yeah, no, it's a good point. I think it's a it's an important distinction, right? Because Magnuson talks about the best available science. And that's something that a lot of us are obviously very supportive of. We want to use the best information we have. That doesn't mean that you rest on your laurels and you don't do anything about it, right? The, The best available science doesn't mean you can't make it better, you can't improve it further. And I think that's really what this bill goes a long way toward doing for the rec sector. It's not saying 
don't gather self-reported data. It's not saying don't look at state at, at state data in addition to the federal data. It's talking about how do you bring all these data sources together to get the best available information to, to improve the way in which we assess our stocks. We understand what the impact is the recreational sector, and we're able to take those measures into account when we, when we think about the management. No, and, and I think it's important to note, too, when you talk about state data, because that's been a, definitely been something that's been talked about at nauseum at this point. Um, you know, state data, no one's saying that it's not good to incorporate a, a more real-time opportunity when it comes to catch effort. What we are saying, though, is that you do have to connect it back to the original system. You can't just in incorporate new, you know, data collection systems that don't talk to the existing system. If you do, then you have to start over. And starting over is not an option when you're looking at the amount of historical data that has been provided through MRIP. I mean, we're talking 30 years of data. You can't just undo that because then you don't understand where the actual ocean's carrying capacity exists. And that's important when looking at this statistically. And I know this is, you know, this is pretty in the weeds in this conversation, but the reality is, is that a lot of anglers don't understand that. And all they see is that, oh, well, they won't allow us to do state data, so they, want, they don't want to make it better. The reality is, is that they would love to incorporate that. I've talked to managers. I know that that's the case. State data does have some good components about it. But you have to make sure that those two systems talk to each other in order to make sure that you're going in the direction that's sustainable. And that's the key is sustainability. That's all they want. I mean, the, you know, the reality is, is that if we went back to the bus days of, of 30 years ago with something like Red Snapper, people would be up in arms at the managers for not doing their job properly. And so they don't want to let that happen. And, and Well, so Lucas, let's be honest. You know, there's components of the rec sector that aren't doing themselves any favors when they're at a council coordinating committee and, and talk about collecting data in the Gulf of Mexico through an app and go on record and say that recreational anglers won't be honest because they'll cut their own quota if they're honest. So they're most likely to underreport if they're getting close to their quota. I've been doing this a long time. That was one of the most fascinating uh, comments that I've ever heard in my life on record in front of every uh, chairman of every council in the world. Um, yeah, basically saying like, oh, well, you know, when we get close to the quota, we'll probably under report. So I don't really think that gives managers a high level of confidence in that data when people are running around saying that stuff. So I guess my point in bringing that up is just to say that, you know, we have to be providing information um, that is that is solid and and that the managers can use and like you said is, is able to be easily incorporated into into the data um you know as an example willie is doing some science on bluefin tuna reporting right now through a nifwif grant and the compliance on the rec reporting for bluefin tuna is at 20 percent i think willie is that correct i don't want to speak here yeah, we can't know for sure. I think the estimate is that the compliance is, is pretty low. And it's again, it's one of these examples where the fishery is. Um, and I'm just picturing Lucas trying to stuff a bluefin tuna into his <laughs> coffin box on right. his skiff with the tail <laughs> hanging out. And, you know, like if you can't report on something like a bluefin tuna, how are you going to report? And that's, but it's also, and that's mandatory reporting too, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. I, was, I was. Yeah. So it's a mandatory reporting. There was also, you know, there's an MRIP component um, for collecting data on bluefin tuna, but it's also a great example of the challenges of trying to game the system, right? To Tony's point with the bluefin tuna fishery, 
part of the reason why it's so important to know how many fish we're catching is so that we don't exceed our quota. It's an internationally allocated quota. We don't want to go over it so we aren't punished in, in future years. But the other really important part is, you know, recreational catch data isn't just about understanding what the recreational fishery is doing. It's a really important data input into stock assessments, right? And in the bluefin tuna case, what recreational tuna fishermen catch on the East Coast, all those little bluefin tuna, that's one of the predominant recruitment indices for the stock assessment for Western bluefin tuna. So it's a, you know, it's a double-edged sword, right? And the dominant strategy, at least in my mind, is get the best available data. Don't try to game the system. You know, you it, it goes both ways and you really need to keep that in mind when trying to trying to communicate this information to anglers on the water. Well, and, and the communication component is something that I definitely wanted to touch on because to me, scientists do science really well and they communicate really poorly. And, you know, understanding as an angler, what it is that you're contributing oh, to. Oh, preach brother. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta work with one of them every day. Oh my God. Keep talking. I don't want to stop you. Keep, keep rolling, buddy. You know, and communication is something that I think as the average angler, we don't understand a lot of times what's going into all the science that we're providing and how many components there are to it. You know, it's a very complex system and I don't expect everyone to understand stock assessments at the level that a scientist does. But I do think that if we understood better what our information was going towards and how it was then being computed and put back out, that people would buy in a much, you know, much higher rate. Because right now I think the uncertainty that comes with uncertainty is really uncertain. And that sounds funny, but the reality is, is that the more uncertain that people are about providing data, the less they're going to be willing to do it. And the more uncertain managers are about the data coming in, the more tight or conservative they're going to be with the way that they, uh, you know, provide quota opportunities. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, really. And it's, it's unfortunate, but I think what has to happen now is that we need to start talking directly to anglers from scientists so that they understand the information they're providing and where it's going. And the other thing that we have to do is, is really a cultural shift. And it's about the idea that if I provide data, I get something better. The reality is, is that sometimes that data being provided is for better in the future. It doesn't mean better right now. And so this short-sighted sort of instant gratification thing that we've got going on in fisheries management is really a cultural shift that needs to happen across the country. And it happens everywhere. Um, if you look at, you know, sort of hunting as a good example, I think the way that elk and other things are terrestrially managed, I think makes a lot more sense in the way that we should probably look at our oceans in the future. And that, you know, understanding that there's a finite amount of the opportunity, there's a finite amount of resources, a finite amount of habitat tells us that there are going to be times that we have to sacrifice as hunters in order to be able to sustain responsibly these, these sort of, uh, you know, uh, resources and, and the ocean is the same way, you know, the carrying capacity of the ocean has never increased, but the amount of people taking from it has. And so understanding that and, and, and admitting to it is, is half the battle. No, I'm, I'm totally with you on, on all of what you said, but I think in particular with the communication, you kept saying we, and I think with regard to that, I think that's a place where our, our organizations really need to be that honest broker, right? That's a really Absolutely. Key role for our groups. You know, part of it is advocating for policy, and being in those discussions, but equally important or arguably more important is making sure that people on the water understand what's going on and are able to be meaningful contributors to the process. And that's a really big lift. I think, again, the way in which this bill was developed was a really instructive example of that. They, uh, Congressman Hoffman and Case did a ton of work to make sure they were hearing all of those voices and, and educating themselves, even while educating folks um, on the issues as well. Willie, Willie so far, I, be, I, it, yeah, go far ahead. be it from me to try to give you kudos, but I, I think 
I think I'm going to. Um, I'm glad. I don't know. I'm I started recording. Stand, Go on. Stand back. Stand back, y'all. Something yeah, may explode. Hold yeah. on a second. Y'all are y'all are lucky. You're on like you, each of you are like you know several hundred miles at least away from me because it, you know the giant meteorite is inbound. Um, one of the things when you know I, I know how much work have to put into their blue ribbon panel it was awesome and it should come as no surprise that when we did our like you know kind of pie in the sky dream of what a magnuson reauthorization would look like one of the things that willie harped on got in got in ours because he made such a such a great point about it and it related to you know it was very personal for him because it was the cod fishery was he hammered home that, you know, when a fish is overfished and the fisheries management plans to recover them continually fail, that the subsequent plan should be more stringent. I mean, you just keep doing the same thing over and over again. So based on um, legal precedent, uh, federally managed fisheries have to have, when, when something's overfished, there has to be at least a 50% chance that the fisheries management plan to end overfishing is successful. And there are certain species that have just languished overfishing for eons, winter flounder, cod. And uh, if you, if you look real close into this legislation, there is sort of lines in there that say, if the fisheries management plan didn't work, the subsequent plan has to have a 75% chance of success, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's monumental. So I'm sure other people pressed that. I'm sure it was, I'm not, you know, Lucas, I'm not sure if that, if some, if some of that language was in y'all's blue ribbon panel. So I don't want to sit here and take, you know, our association takes sole credit for it, but I know because of COD, Willie was just adamant about that. And I'm sure other groups were too, but to see that in the legislation, you know, look, Willie wants to go out there and catch big cod like he used to when he was a kid. He wants kids to catch big cod. I would like to go visit my, uh, some of my friends up in Jersey and sit on a bulkhead and throw a blood worm out and catch some winter flounder like we used to do. They're fun little fish, little rubber lip maniacs. You know, it's cool, man. They're winter flounder for a reason. It's cold as hell and you can still catch a fish and we don't see them anymore. So, you know, it's little stuff like that that isn't so little in this bill. Um, and again, you know, Lucas, I'm, I, I read y'all's blue ribbon panel back and forth. I'm not trying to take credit for this. I don't remember if it was in there, but I just know how important it was to Willie. And, you know, you take a step back and you're on the listening panels and you write stuff in and you're talking, you're talking to Huffman's office all the time about this. And then, boom, you see the language and a couple of things you mentioned are in there. It makes you feel pretty damn good. Uh, it makes you feel like you're making a little bit of a difference. And I know a lot of the stuff in your blue ribbon panel was in there, too. But I don't know. I just think the offices did a great job. There's stuff in there that, you know, we're not rah-rah over i'm not going to be a cheerleader either and I, I don't want anyone to get a visual of me and me and or lucas cheerleading for anything um because that would 
that would probably scar you for life. So Lucas is not going to be getting a cheerleader's outfit for MRIP. And there's Mm -hmm. certain aspects of this that I'm not going to get in a cheerleader's outfit for. Um, But But generally, Mr. You got to bring you got to bring the Met thing up, huh? Okay. I'm on, I'm on eBay right now, looking around. I can probably see what's going up there. It might be, it might be used, so just be prepared for that. But you get, oh yeah, that'd be that'd Those be Those things great. get pretty hot in the summertime. That'd be, I, was gonna, I was gonna say I'm gonna have I'm gonna have some like Union Steelworkers ex Mr. Met guy, you know, smell smell of stogies and eggplant parm coming through the thing, and I'm I'm Italian, so everyone can bite me. Um, so. Uh, they can bite you in your eggplant parm. <laughs> bite me in my eggplant parm, square in the middle of it, Lucas. So, so I, I just know. want to say real quick, Tony, I just wanted to say real quick that, you know, the 75% thing is important because one of the things that I see a trend when you look at reauthorizations of the past is that they took what was working in Magnuson, they kept it, and then they took things that could be improved and they improved it. And when you look at the 50 to 75% jump, you're right, it doesn't seem like a lot on paper. But the reality is, is that if you can increase that 25% when you're looking at rebuilding timelines, it makes a huge difference in success rates. It means that we don't have to stay in those timelines as long. It means we don't have to continually extend them. And that's something that I think is extremely important when we're looking at the way that this reauthorization has taken place. And that as we understand things better, we should be making improvements in the way that we can. And I think what we talked about earlier with data collection is a prime example. So is this. I mean, the idea that we've been stuck in these perpetual timelines over and over and over again, and we're still seeing overfishing occurring, tells us that a change needs to be made. And so I appreciate and, and, and let's make it real, right? I mean, thinking about businesses, right? Thinking about, as you said, the long-term planning and everything else that goes into it. It's pretty hard to pretty hard to do that if if you're not sure if a plan that's designed to succeed is ultimately doomed to fail because of whatever provisions are in it or because you know there aren't there aren't kind of self corrections that happen along the course of that rebuilding plans for uh... absolutely and then and then from a business standpoint i mean looking at some of the things that you know others were trying to take out of the bill in a reauthorization it was definitely something that was detrimental to someone trying to make any long-term plans for their business i mean when you take away some of the conservation provisions that were going to or would have made Magnuson one of the most successful and one of the most touted sort of gold standard management uh, laws or acts in the, in the world, um, you know, then you definitely start talking about uncertainty as a business owner. And I can tell you right now that there are too many uncertainties that come with owning your own business. I mean, I understand that from being a guide for 10 years. There's too many things that we can't predict as business owners. And so having that certainty and a reauthorization is extremely important in the way that our organization as AFTA continues and the way that the businesses represent do as well. So guys, I think, you know, we've given folks a good sense of, again, the flavor that's that's in this reauthorization bill, right? We've talked about climate, we've talked about rebuilding, we've talked about rec data. Those are, a you know, forage fish, there's habitat uh, improvement protections. There's all sorts of great stuff in here. Um, and I think maybe it would be useful to just talk about where do we go from here, right? So it was a long process for this, you know, for this legislation to get introduced this past week, as you guys were discussing, and kind of what happens now, right? I think for folks, you know, the the legislative path can be pretty tortuous, I think, in a lot of cases. And it's maybe worth just taking a minute to to explain to listeners kind of what happens when, a, you know, after this bill has been introduced, like, and, and where do we go? Hey, can I make a suggestion here? Just like, I don't know, I'm just spitballing. I'm, I'm looking at Willie, the veins on the side of Willie's head, pulse. I could set my watch to him because anytime I spitball, he gets nervous. <laughs> but 
but I, I think if the listeners are actually interested in this and, and the membership from, you know, our two associations is interested in this, if it, if the time is right, if we have time, you know, maybe we open it up to some kind of larger webinar, um, you know, where AFTA and the guides association can kind of talk about the benefits of, of some of this, some of this language in here and kind of teach people, um, you know, on a broader scale on like a zoom or something, but it's something that we can think about. But I, I think that would be, I think that would be cool if, uh, if, if we all got together and, and kind of talked about how it impacted our various industries, um, you know, and like, where do we go from here, Willie, you know, uh, if people haven't been paying attention, I think any legislation introduced, uh, in this day and age in, in Congress is, uh, is going to be challenging. Um, and you know, there's going to be strategies, uh, employed to get more people on board with this and, and make it an issue. The August recess is coming up like a, like a freight train. So the, they'll, they'll be on recess after the first week of August, not come back till the second week of September. So it's really important to keep talking about this and keep it kind of front of mind. Um, Lucas, what do you, what do, what do you think moving forward? What are your plans with AFTA? I mean, we want to continue to be engaged with Huffman's office in the best way that we can so that we understand the needs that he may have, you know, as far as support and as far as, you know, ways that we can reach out to potentially partners within Congress that he may need. Um, I think it's important that we, we really kind of go to the source to begin with to understand because he's going to understand his bill and reauthorization better than anyone and sort of the trials and tribs that it's going to go to trying to get through the House and then you know, let's not even mention the Senate because it has to be taken up there um, in a similar way. They have to be reconciled that they're two different bills. And then, you know, from there, it would be actually voted on um, by the Senate. I mean, the House needs to get there first. But, um, you know, I think for now, it's going to be about having conversations with Huffman and Case's office to see where they stand and what they need. And, and then just continually supporting the bill uh, on its merits and, and continually touting the fact that it is bipartisan. And, and I think trying to get other members of Congress to understand that is going to be important as we're looking at opportunities to get this through. I mean, the reality is, is that there's a lot of stuff going on right now in Congress. There's a lot of things that people are, you know, bubbling up to the surface as the most important thing that we can, we can vote on and, and spend our time on. And so this is definitely going to be lower on the list of priorities, but I think as, as much as we can continue to keep it at, at the front of people's mindsets and keep it out there through, you know, some of these spitballed ideas that you had, Tony, um, I think is going to be extremely important and just making sure that this reauthorization has the legs it needs maybe to get into the next Congress too, because just because it doesn't pass here, it's important to note that the 118th Congress could easily pick this up in a new, a new introduction. And then from there kind of continue down that path. So, well, it's never been easy to reauthorize Magnuson. I mean, right. it's, it's a slog for sure. Right. But I think getting these ideas out there too, you know, and, and perpetually reinforcing these ideas is really important too. So, you know, out of the modern fish act, Tony, as you know, uh, one of, one of the provisions was for a study, uh, by the national Academy of sciences to look at, uh, MRIP and improving MRIP and thinking about alternative management strategies and kind of the broader context of, of managing recreational fisheries under annual catch limits. That study just came out a few weeks ago. And one of the, you know, one of the big recommendations in there is calibrate alternative data sources with MRIP data and make sure that you have apples to apples, you know, 
uh, comparisons there and you're able to integrate all that information to have the best available information for management. It's a very similar message to what we see here. To the extent to which we can get that information out there and keep those conversations and talking points elevated, that's going to be really important too. So I think, you know, the legislation is obviously one key element of it, but just making sure these ideas are kind of in the conversation when it comes to improving our management is, is well, Willie, how do you know so much about the National Academy of Science study? <laughs> well, Tony, how do you? Uh, yeah, your 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 knowledge of it. Me and Lucas are just sitting here, and we're like, "How does he know so much?" Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. Flabbergasted. You know, I, uh, I I had the the privilege, I will say, uh, to be one of the peer reviewers on that study before uh, before it was published. I think two ooh, weeks ago ooh, now. La, so la. Definitely a, a lot of juicy info in there. We'll hopefully have a podcast digging into that in a bit more detail. And are you going to put that on your uh, business card now? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there's room. I'll have to ask the boss about that, Tony, so we can read. No, the printing costs are too much, and nobody uses business cards anyway. Start with really? your email signature, and we'll work out from there. <clears throat> Willie, I think one of the things that I would love to hear you explain just a little bit briefly, because as a scientist, I know you could drone on all day, but peer review is something You're that's so extreme. sweet. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. No worries. I like to I like to tee you up with a real dig. And then that way you feel you feel confident enough to tell me what I want to hear. Um, no, but peer review is something that I think is extremely important when we talk about scientific, you know, uh, you know procedure. Um, you know, a lot of times people. I've heard recently are touting maybe some studies and other things that have been done that aren't yet peer reviewed or aren't yet, you know, sort of verified by other independent reviewers. And so could you just touch on that kind of procedure? I know it's very academic in the sense of, you know, whenever you write a paper or, you, you know, publish something like that, it needs to be peer reviewed, but it, it goes the same way with scientific stuff as like stock assessments tend to tend to be independently peer reviewed. So if you would just touch on that, because I think a lot of people don't understand what that means. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm happy to, Lucas. And thanks for bringing it up. And I, I mean, the, the basic premise here, right, is just, you know, it, it, as it's called peer review for a reason, right? This is fisheries is a, is a pretty specialized field. There are, you know, a, a small handful of experts on any given subject. And the idea here is just to make sure that the work that you've done kind of passes muster according to other folks who also devote their entire lives to working on similar stuff. You know, that's one part of it. One part of it is making sure that all of your methods are sound and that all of your statistical analyses are good. The other part of it is it, it's a really great tool for opening your eyes and thinking about new approaches or kind of new directions of your research. So, you know, that doesn't mean that you're going to totally redo a study, but there might be a, a different statistical tool, or there might be another analog and another fishery that you hadn't thought about. And so there's a lot of great benefits that come to peer review. And the ultimate goal is to have the best available product, right? To have the best available information out there for, for management use and for, for other scientists to be able to, to look at and learn from for future studies. You know, it's all about building that body of knowledge and making sure we, we are continuing to evolve in our thinking about fisheries. And so that's really important, you know, and the obvious downside when it comes to peer review is time, right? And that's just something that we have to accept. Um, peer review is generally a pretty slow process. We're talking about Congress. Uh, we're also talking, you know, it's a it's a it's a long process here as well. Um, my last dissertation chapter was I first uh, submitted it for publication in I think March of 2018, and it didn't come out in publication until June of 20 June of 2020. So 
you know, these things take time. They don't always take that long. Sometimes they take longer. Sometimes they're they're quick. Um, but, you know, that's certainly a downside, right, especially when you're dealing with time sensitive issues. So I guess what I'm saying is peer review is very important. There are certain cases where sometimes, you know, the urgency of the of the issue or because the methods are very well established by somebody who's, you know, very well known in the field. You know, if the information is that critical to get out there, you know, it isn't always something that uh, will go through peer review. So I think technical technical memoranda from from NOAA Fisheries is a good example of that. Um, but I mean, it is, you know, it, it's kind of the gold standard of, of science, right, is peer review and making sure that that we're that every single that all the input from folks who who really know what they're talking about is being considered and that that's, you know, where that we're collectively working to improve our state of knowledge on a given topic. So that was a very long winded way of saying peer review <laughs> is great. It takes a while. Um, it isn't always completely necessary given the task at hand and given the urgency of what's at hand. Um, but it's a, a pretty key cornerstone of a lot of the science that informs all of our management. Well, and I just wanted you to touch on that because I think, like I said, whenever you're looking at, you know, new opportunities to be incorporated into existing science, it's important to understand that you can't just take that new science and immediately slap it into um, an existing platform and that, you know, peer review becomes extremely important. Statistical analysis becomes extremely important. I mean, it this almost is just, sounds like you're talking about a certain study in the Gulf of Mexico last could year. Could possibly we be. To, we, we don't have to go into detail on that. Yeah. I also just want to note that we made it almost 30 minutes without mentioning Red Snapper in this. So I'm pretty impressed with us. As a group. <laughs> yeah, I was talking about a specific uh, great something or other that happened in the Gulf. Um, and and not that I'm not that I'm trying to dispel anything that came out of that study. It's just. Those are the sorts of things that peer review becomes extremely important in order to make sure that the information that you're now trying to use and incorporate into an existing system is 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 sound and that it it has met that scrutiny of other people who are experts in that field. And, you know, those are the sorts of things that you can't just rush through because you want to. It's it. Yes, it would be convenient just to take things that you think help you and to incorporate them quickly into an existing system. But the reality is, is that in the long term, that could very quickly dismantle everything that was good about and, it. And a lot of it's like we were talking about with data, right? So, I mean, you might view reporting data as potentially hurting you in the hurting you in the in the short term and potentially benefiting you in the long term. Um, or, or maybe you don't view it that way. But the bottom line is the best information is what's best for our for our fisheries. And you know, you could easily rush through something that hurts you as easily as you, as easily as you could something that helps you, right? And I think that's important to remember as well. And kind of the 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 leveling factor here is is just doing the best that we can with uh, with the expertise that we have at our at our disposal. Well, boy, was that an interesting guidepost. We want to thank our guest, Mr. Executive Director Lucas Bissett. And the other guy that I have to listen to all day, every day, Willie, for joining us today. How informative. I think we may have to do another. It's always fun to have you on. Talk to you about anything, Lucas. Willie, meh. <laughs> well, maybe, it's first... just a, maybe it's just a novelty, too. Well, the, the meh is the first part of Mets, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Thank you very much for the reminder.
I, uh, I've got some stuff bookmarked <laughs> that I'm gonna have to go shop in later and a little later. So uh, I think a, I think a cardboard cutout would be pretty, plenty be sufficient. Good. Like yeah. I want it to look like a three year old. If you if then, you yeah. get me some used I mean, crap and bring like bed bugs into my house, <laughs> you're gonna deal with my wife. That's Tony, all that's I the can gift say. That, that's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, yeah. right. Shit, yeah. dude. And but, you said, yeah, like, <laughs> my wife, that's all I can anyways, say, man. Lucas, it's, it's been a pleasure. We've got a long road ahead here on, on MSA, on all the other issues we work together on, but it's a pleasure to have you on, bud, and look forward to uh, continuing to fight the good fight. Absolutely. No, and I appreciate y'all having me and uh, giving me the platform, and it was a very informative conversation for me as well, so I appreciate y'all having me on.